1: Hi, folks. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest for today is Dr. Panayotis League, author of Echoes of the Great Catastrophe Resounding Anatolian Greatness and Diaspora, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2021. Echoes of the Great Catastrophe, Resounding Anatolian Greatness and Diaspora, explores the legacy of the Great Catastrophe, the death and expulsion from Turkey of 1.5 million Greek Christians following the Greco-Turkish War of 1919 and 1922 through the music and dance practices of Greek refugees and their descendants over the last 100 years. The book draws extensively on original ethnographic research conducted in Greece, on the island of Lesbos in particular, and in the greater Boston area, as well as on the author's lifetime immersion in the North American Greek diaspora. Through analysis of handwritten music manuscripts, homemade audio recordings, and contemporary live performances, the book traces the routes of repertoire and style over generations and back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean, investigating the ways that the particular musical traditions of the Anatolian Greek community have contributed to their understanding of their place in the global Greek diaspora and the wider post-Ottoman world. So a little bit more about our guest today, Dr. Panayotis-League is Assistant Professor of National Musicology and Director of the Center for Music of the Americas at Florida State University, my institution. So welcome, Dr. League, to the New Books Network.
0: All right. Thanks. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah. Looking forward to our chat. So before we talk about the actual book, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about you?
0: Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks so much, Emily, for inviting me to talk about my work. Uh, it's always really a delight to be able to get into the some of the details of one's research and writing with people who are engaged in doing the same type of stuff. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, as you said, I teach musicology, ethnomusicology, critical music studies, which is what I Prefer to call it here at Florida State. Um, I've been, this is my third year as a faculty member here. Uh, So I teach various courses that you would expect from someone with a PhD in in musicology, uh, as well as I direct the Center for Music of the Americas here, which is uh, a multimodal institute which does a lot of stuff with performance, with pedagogy, um, publicly facing scholarship and practice, uh, and I also direct the Grupo Jaragua, which is the Brazilian music ensemble here. Um, I have been a musician for my entire life since adolescence, I suppose, maybe a little bit before. Um, I grew up around traditional Greek music from the um, Aegean Islands and traditional Irish music, reflecting my parentage to a Greek mother and an Irish American father from uh, very musical families. And uh, I suppose by virtue of just the environments that I grew up in and my, my particular musical, artistic, philosophical, ideological, political leanings, I've just always been uh, really interested in, in all the, the why questions about music. Uh, why, it may, why certain types of music always made me feel certain ways and think certain things. Um, why certain types of music or the same music in different situations has affected Affects people emotionally, psychologically, um, motivates them intellectually, politically, in different ways, and so um, that's really how I got into this uh, business, this big M business, as we say around Florida State. For those of you who don't know what that what I mean, uh, this is a catchphrase, a catch-all phrase that we use around here to mean, you know, we say big M musicology, musicology with a capital M, really actively working to against trying to break down. Uh, as many barriers as many disciplinary methodological analytical theoretical philosophical barriers between the different fields of musicological inquiry and practice as we can so we're trying to do away with the dis- historical distinction between musical historiography historical musicology and ethnomusicology um, but beyond that we are really actively trying and i think succeeding to promote a different paradigm of what it means to be a, a community of scholar practitioners of, who, are, who are not just thinking and writing and researching and talking critically about music, but are practice, practicing, taking a very critical, engaged stance towards music with a capital M, which is so much more than the sounds that we make, right? And so that, that's, that's where I'm coming from. And that's actually where this book came from as well.
1: Yeah, that actually uh, leads to my next question really well, right? You know, thinking about some of those things we we're just talking about, this big and mentality, and just kind of the overall process of working on this book. What was this journey like for you um, over the last couple of years and stuff working on this?
0: Sure. Well, this being my first, this is my first monograph, right? So it's my first single authored book. And as is Usually, not always, but usually the case in our field, it, it's, a, it's a very much revised and edited and um, further developed version of my dissertation, uh, which, I, which I suppose I finished in 2017. Uh, so the dissertation was kind of draft 0.0, 0, <laughs> of, uh, of this book. Uh, maybe it was draft 0.0. Five. I don't know. Maybe the zero zero zeros were were papers that I wrote when I was in graduate school. But um, I actually was very surprised that I wound up doing this project because when I started my PhD program, I was torn initially between two other projects. um, One of which was a Greek focused project, but um, very different, completely different type of music, completely different political and cultural um, context. Um, music that I'm very intimately involved with and have been for twenty years or so, which is the the music, the western part of Crete, the island of Crete in the the southern Aegean Sea, and I was also trying to decide if I was going to do a project based in northeastern Brazil, which I had also been very interested in for a while, and I had lived there in a different part of Brazil that I had lived in Brazil before, and um, but you know at the same time, to be perfectly honest with you it was one of those best laid plans, ganging (laughs) a glay. Because when I found myself and I was, I went to graduate school in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, because, you know, being somebody who, who plays traditional Greek music, I just found myself when I was living there looking for people to, to hang out with and make music with. And it, Circumstances were such that the people who I connected with the most, musically and socially, happened to be members of this other uh, Greek cultural group. I suppose I could say ethnic group, although when we say that in the Greek context, we mean something different than we normally mean in, in English. Um, it, has something, it has more to do with, with language and, cult and regional affiliation and different dialects of, of culture, not just language. Um, but they're from a very different ethnic group than the ethnic group I grew up around and that I'm part of through my mother. Um, and their music and cultural constructs are very, very different from mine. And um, but I wound up spending a lot of time with uh, this core group of musicians and friends who, I mean, for the better part of a decade, getting together at least once a week um, for the big dinner and drinking ouzo and talking about music and playing and dancing at my friend's house. And so I just gradually over the years began to get to know this music very well. And I discovered a bunch of things right away that um, this music and these, this, this particular culture, which is from the northeastern corner of the Aegean Sea, so the kind of northeastern Mediterranean, basically the, the coast of the Mediterranean coast of what is now Turkey, and those the islands that are right next to it—a very different part of the Greek world than where where my people are from. Um, I started to learn how a couple of things simultaneously. Right, like first of all, there are so many people from there in the Greater Boston area, um, which I did not really realize before I moved there, um, and I also realized that a huge, huge percentage of the people, the Greeks in the Boston area, are the descendants of refugees who settled in Boston in the early 1920s. Um, And that immediately set them apart from a lot of the other, kind of the older Greek communities on the East Coast um, and and more recent migrants. Um, Also their music, I realized how closely, not just closely related, but just in terms of practice, historical practice up until very recently, how deeply, intimately imbricated it is with the musical practices of other post-Ottoman groups to New England and to the the United States in general, particularly Armenians, um, but also uh, Ottoman, um, post-Ottoman Arab Arab populations, and of course, um, Turks themselves, though there is not a tremendously large Turkish population um, in the United States, and certainly not in the Boston area. Um, And I also, probably the biggest thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later as well, I started to realize through these musical practices and through being around learning how to dance with and like my new friends and eating their food and just talking to them about their sense of Greekness, members of the Greek, their sense of themselves as members of the Greek diaspora, I quickly began to realize that the way that they conceptualize that is is quite different from... um, what I guess we could call a mainstream idea of thinking about Greekness in relation to the Greek state in relation to um, kind of codified mainstream ideas about uh, the Greek language, Greek history, this kind of thing. In a nutshell, I started to realize that um, uh, the core, I argue anyway through this book that the core of these people's um, sense of, of Greekness of their Greekness has to do with the late Ottoman social context that doesn't exist anymore, um, which was fundamentally a pluralistic one. So Greekness in a nutshell being defined in relation to other post-Ottoman minorities and the majority. So in relation to Armenians, to Sephardic Jews, to Persians, to Arabs, to Levantine European Christians, and of course, to, uh, to Turks. And to that, that kind of, concept of what it means to live in, um, in community, a localized community and a larger kind of more notional community. So that's where it com- came from. Essentially. I, I just, dis- it, of all the projects I was contemplating, it was the most intellectually interesting one to me because it was the one in which I felt like I could learn the most because it was, it was not a comfort zone of mine. Um, and also I, I realized that there was a real, a real dearth of scholarship, generally speaking but particularly in english about this group of people and their music so i i just figured hopefully if i do it right it'll be it'll be useful to to somebody
1: yeah that's really cool thank you for kind of elaborating on this behind the scenes aspect of the book here and we'll continue unpacking more of this uh backstage stuff too as we go um, kind of shifting gears here for a minute to this first chapter, right? You kind of bring us back, like you were talking about the Boston area, mm-hmm. um, and you br- discuss in that opening chapter, um, this collection of music manuscripts um, with anything from like Ottoman art music, uh, Greek parlor and folk songs. So can you talk to us about what the significance is of that particular collection And as you were kind of going through that collection, what were some of the more fun or interesting things you found?
0: Sure. Well, yeah. The other I I neglected to say when I was talking about how this project started in the first place, the the tipping point for me was when I discovered. Well, I didn't discover it when this was presented to me. Um, So my my dear friend Dean Lambros, um, he his mother's his uh, maternal grandparents are from Lesbos. And uh, he grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, the North Shore. Um, And so he was telling at one point where I was over at his house and we were playing, and he was teaching me some wonky lesbian, these very slow, like heavy nine beat uh, dances. And he said, Oh, you know what? I think, you know, I think actually my great uncle Nikki wrote this down in his book. And then he went on, and I was like, "What do you mean? What 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 are you talking about?" He said, "Oh, my great uncle was a great piano player. You know, he I learned a lot of my music from him. His dad was a really important um, band leader on Lesbos, and you know, came here in the teens. And the dad, sorry, it was the dad, not 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 great uncle Nicky, but uh, Nicky's dad had written down all this stuff. Um, And so I was very intensely curious about it. And I pestered him for a couple of years, actually, and finally he." he dug out some photocopies of it and showed it to me. And it just blew my mind because um, first of all, the date 1907 was when this guy had written this stuff down. And eventually um, I was able to see the originals, which Dean's cousin um, who lives out in, in central Western Massachusetts had at his home and it's hundreds of pages of expertly written notated stuff on manuscript paper, you know, it's in, in gorgeous 19th century hand, you know, um, black and blue ink. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, the penmanship is incredible. Clearly somebody who was a very well-trained musician, but what's so remarkable about this collection? Um, well, there's a bunch of things. One, it's the only, as far as I know, it's the only collection, manuscript collection of, um, music from that era, from around the turn of the 20th century notated in standard western notation by a by a greek musician active in the um in in what we can call you know near eastern modal music or you know ottoman late ottoman music um, of the time and what's so that's one thing i mean just the fact that it's the only one that i know of there there was another one um that was that was compiled a little bit later by um, Panagioti Susam Lis, who was a clarinetist uh, from the city of Izmir, uh, Smyrni, now Izmir, on the western coast of Turkey. But he, like Konstantinos Kiryakoglu, who is the guy who wrote down the collection I'm looking at in this book, the, both of them were active on the island of Lesbos, the big island in the northeastern uh, Aegean, a little bit to the west of the city of Ivaluk in, in Turkey. Um, but Lis's book was almost exclusively Western European music with one or two Ottoman pieces, um, whereas Kiriakoglu's book, again, which he began sometime in the early 20th century, or first decade of the 20th century, has hundreds of pieces. And I, w- I can't really have the index in front of me, but um, roughly a third of it is Ottoman art music, um, classical Ottoman music. Roughly a third of it is European Music, marches, tangos, quadrilles, waltzes. Um, and roughly a third of it is loose, is Greek music, which I'm, I'm making, those of you who can't see me, I'm kind of making jazz hands or scare quotes. <laughs> because um, it's mostly it's mostly kind of like European-style parlor music with Greek lyrics. So he's written the lyrics underneath. Um, there's also a lot of clearly hand-caught, like, meticulously copied piano reductions of of popular songs. Um, But what's so amazing about this collection is not just how big it is and how much variety is. it's how many different notational strategies Kiriakoglu employed when he was writing this stuff down. Because, you know, when I say Ottoman classical music or Ottoman art music, we're talking about music in the makam modal system, right? So it's not tonal music the way that Western Uh, most, a lot of Western music is with where, you know, complex harmonic stuff and, you know, harmonies and chords being stacked. It's really music intended to be played in with um, what we call melodic, uh, you know, melodic heterogeneity, I suppose, you know, lots of individual variations between soloists who are all interpreting the melody at the same time, interacting with a drone and a rhythmic cycle. Um, but he so he he's using the same techniques and the same penmanship and the same notational paradigms to notate two completely different styles of two two musics that are using different theoretical and practical um, approaches. Right. So we have the comma the makam system, which I guess we can call microtonal. I don't really like that term because I think it's misleading. But where um, the intonation of certain pitches in certain m- modes is a little bit flatter or sharper than the corresponding notes on a, on an even tempered piano, for example, um, based on context, melodic direction, that kind of thing. Um, but he, he was using these these similar techniques to notate different types of, of music. And, um, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I'll just, and I'll give you, I'll tell you a couple of things that were just delightful. One of my, one of the things I'm most excited about is that um, there's a lot of evidence in this collection for particular ways that someone who was very well versed in this Ottoman art music tradition at that time, from that place, you know, relatively urbane person on the, kind of in the hinterland. I mean, you know, Lesbos was a very important place, but it wasn't a center in no, you know, like a, it wasn't a big urban center. Uh, But it was something in the middle uh, between Istanbul and, um, you know, a village somewhere like in central Anatolia or central Greece or something like that. Um, But obviously a well-educated musician, but it it gives us a window into how one of these people would have conceptualized the concept of the, of melody in practice. And what I mean by that is that um, the Ottoman art music tradition, much like folk music traditions from, all around the world, and in a similar way, kind of like you know, Western music traditions like jazz, um, the, the the idea of authorship and of like a, a set like standard version of a melody of a composition is a very foreign one, um, at least in terms of like the importance that we tend to put on those concepts in Western classical music, right? So um, the the biggest way that is manifested is in extemporaneous variation on the on the core melody during performance not straight up improvisation akin to a jazz solo although we have that too in this music it's a different thing taksim um, is what we call it Um, but i'm talking about interpreting the melody very freely in performance so you always the listener always knows if they're familiar with the melody what melody you're playing what composition you're playing but there's really no um there's no there's no sense of pressure um to adhere to a, very, to a particular way of playing it. Um, so the, the performer has a lot of opportunities to, extend, to, be, to be extemporaneous. And so what does this mean in terms of this collection? The cool thing is that there are several pieces in this collection that he notated several times, um, that he notated two or three times, um, usually two times. Um, and they're completely different. I mean, they're recognizably the same tune, but they read almost like transcriptions of a performance, but it's kind of a mysterious thing. I like. Well, I'm not really sure why he did this this way, and it's it's not because he didn't remember that he had just he had notated the tune before. Because when this happens, they're almost right next to each other in the book, and from the you know the quality, of the ink, and in the paper, it's clear that they were written just very a short amount of time um, away from each other. So I go and I go to I go on at some length, um, as you can imagine. Um, in the book about what I think, why I think this is significant, um, in a nutshell, I guess it's because it's really, it's real proof. I think it's real proof of this performance, this mode of performance practice among somebody who was a very skilled musician, but was not kind of an A-list guy who was being, making recordings for like Columbia, right? He was somebody, he was a regional musician who had a successful band who toured a lot, but who, you know, for various political and economic reasons left and migrated to the U S was never really, he was kind of lost to history in terms of, um, you know, the recording industry, things like that. But he happened to have these really highly developed, uh, scribal skills, I guess. Right. And wrote down, wrote this huge amount of stuff. Um, it's also just really cool to see, um, you know, a Greek from that time period and that time and place, which is very complicated politically, engaging so passionately with, um, classical Ottoman poetry. I mean, you know, there's all these, there's some 17th century Ottoman pieces in here where he has meticulously written the lyrics in Greek script, but in Ottoman Turkish. Right. And then on the next page, there's like, you know, a mazurka or, you know, there's one page in here that's my favorite, um, that on the top, it's got this really like intense, um. It's a shark, which is like an art song, an Ottoman art song in nine, eight, you know, with like all these modulations between modes and, you know, beautiful lyrics. And then at the bottom of the page, there's like the first bit of the March of the Toreadors from Bizet's Carmen. Um, and it's on the same page, which speaks, I mean, I, that's really the whole book. I think <laughs> it's just this, this page, right? Um, these two things being juxtaposed in the low, in the high home and life and, and, you know, artistic life of this musician, this immigrant musician in the Boston area.
1: Cool. Yeah. And uh, listeners, if you want to know more, definitely read that chapter. It's really interesting what you uh, learn from this collection Um, and sticking with, you know, Massachusetts here for a little bit, right. You know, you kind of turn shift gears to a different type of source, right. Recordings in this case, Um, and you state that people quote historicize and personalized memories awakened by sensory experience from things like recordings recomposed through the performative process of mimesis and carried along on the never-ending journey towards a home that is forever present and forever just outreach in quote. so can you talk a little bit more about these recordings? Um, a couple of examples
0: for us Sure so so I conceived of the the structure of the book is more or less chronological um, and it moves from ethnographically informed historiography towards historically informed ethnography, I guess. Um, so that first bit is what we just talked about Use, looking at these manuscripts, which were compiled by a person who I never met and who I was very distant from me in a lot of ways. And then the next bit of the book is about um, rec- home recordings, audio recordings made by his son, by, by Kiriakobu's son, Nikki, who's um, the pianist who I mentioned earlier. Um, and so these were, these are recordings that he made really on two, there's kind of two sets of them. They're mostly in the 1950s. Um, so half a century really after his father started writing down his stuff. Um, there are recordings, the earlier ones are Niki playing Greek popular music on the bouzouki, the steel string, um, you know, double, double stringed, um, fork in his case, four course, um, bulbeck Lute that's very popular throughout the greek world like these really interesting stripped down arrangements of pop you know greek pop songs from the 40s and 50s stuff that everybody every greek person would have known um, what's particularly cool about them is that you know he was doing it for himself just like after he was a barber like his dad so he'd close up the barber shop and he'd come home and he'd just you know after dinner while while his wife Dottie, who i got to know very well um was making dinner he'd like sit in his study and paternally He had this big old West core, you know, real to reel machine, I think. And he would make recordings of himself, but it's, what's cool about it is that he's playing these kind of urbane pop songs, but he sounds so, so lesbian. Like the, the lesbian dialect of Greek really comes out in his singing, his musical choices, his phrasing. It's very Asia minor Greek. Um, you know, he's playing like pop music on like the pop instrument. And then his later recordings are of him playing the piano. And almost going back, even though they're later, they're almost, I, they're almost going back farther, not farther in time, but farther back in terms of sensory um, orientations. Because he plays the piano in these later recordings, which are mostly of traditional music, not pop music, Greek pop music from the 40s and 50s, but the type of village dance music and Asia Minor uh, urban folk music that his dad certainly would have played as his bread and butter, but is interestingly absent in his dad's manuscript collection. Uh, but what's cool about it is that he plays these tunes on the piano in a way that very explicitly references the saduri, which is a hammered dulcimer that is um, pretty much like the national, you know, instrument of Lesbos and of a lot of Greek communities in Asia minor. Um, and so I make an argument that I think that sound the phrasing and the timbre of the piano with like an open, you know, with the pedals open, particular attack that he's using, particularly melodic flourishes and ornaments that and phrasing that he employs, I make the argument that it's very explicitly um, kind of a a, a mimetic um, invocation of Asia Minor Greek heritage through sound. Because that instrument, the saduri, is so associated with Lesbos, but it's also historically so associated with non-Greek groups, right? Particularly Persians and, um, Muslim Rome people, Roma people. Um, so it's, I think it's a very interesting um, way to look kind of, you know, chronic, um, um, you know, in a multi, take a multi-generational, um, look at, uh, you know, these different kinds of aesthetic orientations that are, learned, absorbed, taught, and how they continue to resonate with, with people today. Because a big part of this book is me reflecting upon these historical archives collaboratively with the descendants of the people who made them. And so I, I really tried to prioritize that.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. And that goes back to that whole Big M approach that you spelled out for our listeners at the beginning. Sure. Um, So it's really cool to kind of see that play out in those couple opening chapters in different ways. Um, And then in chapter three, of course, we go to what's probably a very obvious journey um, at this point for the book, Lesbos. And you highlight some of your, like you were talking about, your experiences as an ethnographer at that space. So can you talk about what that stage of your fieldwork was like and what did you learn from that
0: trip? Mm. Sure. So, by the time I went to Lesbos, I spent about three months there. I guess in the summer of, I want to say, twenty fourteen. By the time I got there, I had been working with these archives for quite some time, and I had been learning how to play, you know, from my friends um, in the Boston area. This particular, their family repertoire and this particular way of interpreting that music. Um, and initially, I just wanted to go there to visit their home village to see the place where Konstantinos had grown up, um, get to know some musicians there. I had a couple of um, close friends from Lesbos from, um, from when I lived in Greece as a young man and I'd never gone and visited them. I wanted to just see the place. And, um, and I also was very interested because of my background in as a, before I went to musicology, I um, was a kind of Greek, uh, phil- I was a philologist so Greek language and literature, and one of my favorite modern Greek um, authors, um, Stratis Mirdivilis, he was from a village very close to theirs, and so I wanted to just very curious about that that those people and that that culture, just like I said, a, a different ethnic group than I'm than I'm a member of and that I've i would ever really spent time around. Um, what wound up happening was I got a lot of great context, right, and I was able to actually. Um, spend a lot of time with and play some music with uh, the cousins of my friends in Boston so people the, the 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 children or the grandchildren of one of the brother one of Costadinos's brothers the music manuscript guy his grandkids um or his great nephews i guess And that was really great. and gave me a lot of context, but I also wound up um, spending a lot of time thinking really, I was forced to think really hard about about the intersections of Aeolian, or, you know, that's their, their ethnic group, right? Or like Anatolian Greek identity, mainstream, quote unquote, Greek political identity, cultural identity, European identity, and things opposed to European identification. In Greece, kind of an e- way of thinking about um, people thinking about themselves as Easterners, Anatolites, right? Um, and I, I realized to, to a degree that really surprised me how muddy a lot of that stuff is and how that muddiness is, gets even muddier through musical, music and dance practices. And there's a lot of tension um, on the island. I haven't been back since then, but I, I, I imagine eight years later, it's, it's fairly similar. Seven eight years later, there's a lot of tension between these these different forces of, um, you know, cultural and political orientation, cultural orientation between the this, these, manu- these artificially manufactured concepts of East and West, right, um, but that are very real in people's minds and play out in political ways that are very real, right? Different political orientations, both on you know, like on a local level, like different sides of the political spectrum or different aspects of the political spectrum in greece which is a very big deal because we're talking about you know full-on crisis era um, greece in 2014 Um, and tensions between older and newer ways of expressing or of engaging in musical sociality and dancing and different social and political values that manifest themselves in class-based um, ways on the island and in these particular communi- communities that I was looking at. So I spent a lot of time um, going to these traditional festivals um, and just observing dynamics and talking to people and um, getting into some pretty um, intense political debates and some very and some very dangerous situations I and mean, some very a lot of physical violence and uh, especially involving animals there's a tradition there's a festival there the um the bull festival where you know a bull is paraded and 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 slaughtered and for this ritual meal but during the whole festivities um, lesbos in general and asia minor people in general are very um they're horse people they're horse breeders and they you know grow up riding horses and um, there's a lot of Kind of training training horses to do acrobatic things and uh, dance in time to the music and this is a source of a lot of contention between older and younger people. Um, there's a lot of a lot of other things that go on there that um, we could I mean frankly I you know you could easily think of as as abuse as animal abuse um, and so there's a lot of debate about that and how and why it's important. Uh, so I want, that was a direction I didn't really expect this project to go in but did. And, um, frankly, you know, in the dissertation version of this book, there were about 50 or 60 more pages about all that stuff, (laughs) but, uh, but I cut Um, it out. uh, Maybe I'll do something else with it later, but, um, I still haven't really wrapped my head around everything. So, but yeah, that's, that's really what that's all about. But it was mostly, it was just a, it was, it was really quite a marvelous experience to, um, to hear and see that music in its, You know, in the the place that, where the place it left to come to, the Boston community, and and note some of the some of the fundamental um, common aspects of the practices, but also some of the differences.
1: Yeah, that's really cool how multi-sided your project is, Um, and I think that even though each chapter is so different, they just flow really well in that way. And like I said, it's like a really cool literal and metaphorical direction that you oh, cool. yeah. I, mean, I,
0: I really did try to, um, you know, we talk a lot about doing multi-sided ethnography, but, but, um, we don't often do it. We don't often like spend the same or at least similar amounts of time and energy. Um, and I don't think, I, I mean, this book is more depth, certainly mostly about a Greek American experience, but it was very important to me to broach some of these topics and look at some of these dynamics as much as I could and keep it, you know, have it hold together thematically and theoretically um, over there in the Aegean, because um, there's just not that much work being done on, on that part of the world.
1: And now with people like you, that is starting to change. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, going back to music for a minute here, yeah. right? In uh, chapter four, you get into, you know, kind of three main performances. Um, They're associated with the Anatolian Greek refugees. So can you talk about, you know, some of the important differences and similarities between these three performances uh, that are important for the reader to understand?
0: Sure. Yeah. So th- so this that part of the book is me comparing and thinking about and talking to people about it's three performances by roughly the same group of musicians with one or two people subbing. Um, so the two main musicians who were part of this were my friend Dean Lambros, who is a le- of lesbian extraction who plays um Sabduri, the Hemer Dulcimer, and the singer Sophia Sofia Sophia as she goes in, in English, who is the descendant of um, Anatolian Greek refugees who are Turkish-speaking Orthodox Christians from central Turkey. She grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, where there are a lot of um, Greek refugees who are Turkish speakers. Um, so the two of them were really, it was this band that Sophia and Dean put together to to play um, at the Montana Folk Festival in Butte, Montana. So it was the first, I think the first or the second, no, it was the second or third year that the National Folk Festival was there. Um, so that's that was a context in which like, farthest from like a, you know, kind of people who would be familiar with this music. And then we played, and then there was a gig, um, at the Boston Balkan night festival, which is an annual festival put on by the, Oh God, I can't remember the name of the association, but it's, um, anyway, it's a, it's a Balkan music and dance festival that happens in Concord, Massachusetts every year. And then, so that's kind of in the middle. So people who, you know, the international folk dance crowd, a lot of people who are ethnic, you know, Greeks, Serbs, Turks, you know, post Ottoman uh, Balkan um, populations, but also a lot of people who love that music and have been involved with it since like the 1960s. A lot of young kids, you know, at any New England Conservatory or Berkeley College of Music who are getting into Bulgarian rhythms and, you know. All kinds of different stuff and so it's a, this really wonderful hodgepodge you know music festival so we had a little late night set at that and then um, the third performance that I talk about was a um, as far as we know it was the first benefit concert for Greek um, for you know Afghan and Syrian refi- refugee relief um, that was organized in the United States and um, it was a benefit for Mithilini General Hospital which is the the big hospital on lesbos um, that was helped giving a lot of, um, necessary aid to the refugees who would, who were pouring across, um, you know, pouring into Greece at that time. So three co- totally same group of musicians, same repertoire, repertoire associated with the refugees who came over in the twenties, but three completely different crowds. And, um, it was just really fascinating seeing what type of things audiences grabbed onto, what types of things audiences didn't respond to at all what the particular challenges were for us, not necessarily playing the music, but presenting it, telling the story, right? Because, you know, these two extreme cases, like for the, the, the audience at this benefit concert, which was up in Maine, um, pretty much everybody in the audience were at either, you know, parents, grandparents, or in the case of the young people who were there, great-grandparents who came over as refugees and who had lost their homes, who had seen family, you know, killed, um, who had made these perilous journeys. And so it was very, it was a very emotionally charged event and we didn't really need to say very much at all about the music. Maybe just make some translations for people whose Greek isn't great, but they really knew the story. They related, they knew a lot of the music. Um, there was so much weeping. There were, there was there was weeping and there was a lot of like spontaneous you know old folks in their eighties getting up and dancing um, to to some of their favorite tunes that they remember from childhood and then on the other side and that was like in a small intimate theater in a cotton like a college you know and then on the other side the Montana Folk Festival like playing on a big stage in the middle of like a street with you know people who probably had never heard consciously heard Greek music. Before and so there was, you know, there was a lot of like strategizing. How do we do justice? How do we do honor to this music and to the people who gave it to us and the people who gave it to them and the stories that are embedded in this music, encoded in it? How do we talk about some of the harsh realities of like you know a lot of these songs are were written by people who are in really bad situations, and there's a lot of there's a lot of tough stuff in these songs. A lot of there's a lot of a lot of the songs are about abuse of various types. They're about violence. A lot of the songs are really misogynistic. A lot of the songs are really dark. And so, you know, how do you contextualize those for an audience that won't understand a word? You know, and there's a lot of choices you can make. I mean, do you just emphasize that this is party music? Do you try to give a history lesson? You know, do you split the difference? And what, what do those choices imp- imply? And what processes do they implicate you in? So that's really what that, that chapter is about, really reflect, re- reflecting critically upon what it means, the responsibility of, as a musician who's performing this stuff like, and, and telling these stories, it's pretty, it's an awesome responsibility. And I mean that in the, you know, the old-timey sense of the word, right?
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, too, have you more recently seen examples of how this music has been, you know, performed in different ways during the pandemic? Has there been any kind of like online presence or, you know, I'm just kind of thinking about maybe more recent strategies along the lines you were just talking about?
0: Right. Well, I mean, there over the last couple of decades, um, there has been a lot more historicizing and contextualizing of this repertoire. And I should say that, you know, I don't want to give the impression that um, the rep, when I talk about Anatolian Greek music, that um, by and large, the stuff that we were performing at these three, three shows um, is not the music that I'm talking about in the first part of the book. It's not stuff from these transcriptions. Although we did do a concert of music from that, um, from that book. Um, it's more, songs, pop songs from the 1920s and 30s that, are, that were written by, you know, the products of the music industry that grew up around this music, both in modern day Turkey and in, in Greece. Um, so a lot of that music is often taken out of context. It's all wrapped up in the political, different political ideologies that were at work at the time that have continued, you know, have evolved in the modern Greek context. And, you know, that's something we probably don't have time to get into, but, um, suffice it to say that, yeah, over the last couple of years of pandemic, there's been a pretty extraordinary amount of, um, artistic output in Greece and especially people coming together and reinterpreting some of these old songs, um, people from different, who work in different genres, um, or who normally are pop stars. I mean, a great example is there's a singer and songwriter named Socrates Malamas who, um, did an extraordinary, I'm like such a huge fan of his. If he like walked into the room, I would, I would probably, sh- I would probably squeal. <laughs> he's just like he's amazing, he's an amazing musician. Um, but he's done this series, this online series. Um, I think he calls it Tashketa, which means just like straight, like stripped down stuff, where it's just him singing and a guitarist and a bouzouki player, just like classic, like old school refugee nightclub trio. Um, Singing a lot of these songs that those guys would have played in the '20s and '30s, and so like that stuff. There have been so many projects like that lately where people can get together on Zoom, even, or people who live near each other, you know, or just getting together and filming it and putting it on YouTube or whatever. Um, So yeah, there has been there has been quite a bit. But you know, my I just think it's so important that we consider music with with as much context as we can. And, you know, the, the, the more time goes by, the more our ideas about that context get, get solidified or get, get, kind of get like reified, you know, become ossified almost like, you know, they just turn into these like fossils. And that happens with this music a lot. I mean, just the questions of terminology, you know, whether we're going to call a particular type of music rebetica or... Smirneica or mikrasiatika these three terms in greek which mean you know different things i will you know doesn't even necessarily matter in the context of this conversation what they mean but they are they are three com- very ideologically and politically loaded terms that can all be used to describe the same stuff the same like there's like a single song that you could call these three different things based on what you're trying how it fits into your agenda right Um, And oftentimes it just has to do with like, you know, what language it's being sung in or what dialect of Greek it's being sung in or what instruments it's being played on. Um, Or if you're talking about a particular recording, what year it was recorded on, by whom, where, you know, that kind of stuff. And so um, I just I just always want to people who love this music to remember that it's never it never has been just one thing and it's never going to be just one thing. Um, it's just as fluid as everything else in the world. It just depends on how people are, what people's orientations are towards it.
1: Yeah. Thank you for those very important points and, you know, um, takeaways for our listeners too, with, you know, some of the important points of the work. And, you know, as we start wrapping up, is there anything else that we have not yet talked about, that you think is important to understand about your work here,
0: about this book. Um, well, sure. I <laughs> this book started out as an extremely experimental piece of writing, um, and it and it was very experimental and very, very dense and very theoretically. Ambitious and abstract, and um, when I start, when I came back to it after you know the dissertation happened, it was done. I caught my breath a little bit, worked on some other things. And when I came back to it, I read it, and I was like, ah, I mean, it's cool, it's really interesting, and I think I think I, you know, I was trying to do all these things, and I think I actually did a lot of them, but I felt alienate. I felt I found it a little alienating as a as a reader um and i i mean the person who wrote it but i had enough distance um that i i think that i was able to really read it honestly um and i really didn't like as an experience as an aesthetic experience and as an as a as a unified like intellectual aesthetic emotional psychological experience i i was very dissatisfied with it and so i just i pretty much i cut probably 100 pages total and I re- completely rewrote big sections of the book. Um, I added a chapter, which is that fourth chapter that has to do with the, you know, those three concerts. And I think most importantly, I completely reconsidered everything in terms of how I was framing it theoretically. And I actually stripped, I stripped out a lot of the stuff I was trying to do because I don't think that some of it didn't work, but even the stuff that worked, I didn't think would be very useful to very many people. Um, And I really don't, I don't want to be that kind of author, you know, I want to be part of conversations. That's the whole reason I do this. Right. Um, So I retooled it and I think it's a a much, um, I don't think it's any less ambitious in terms of what it's trying to do, but I think it's trying to do less things. And I think the thing, I think it's much clearer and easier to read and hopefully enjoyable to read. So it's, it's not a huge book. It's 200 pages Total, like including every page of paper, I think, in the book, um, and it's it's available online through the University of Michigan uh, Fulcrum site. So, um, if you're listening to this and you're like, "Oh my God, this sounds super like abstract and nerdy," it is very nerdy, but I don't think it's very abstract. I think you would enjoy it, even if you're you know not in, in the habit of reading musicological scholarship. Um, I imagine most of the listenership of this. Podcast is, but um, I think it's a, I think it's a readable book. So I mean, I think that's the the only thing I would say. And, and, and uh, there's some great characters in it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you talking about that process because as someone who's also thinking about turning a dissertation into a book, yeah, it's interesting to hear about how that went. So yeah, <laughs> thanks yeah. for sure
0: that. <laughs> And you know, I have to give a shout out to the anonymous reader. I mean, my editors at Michigan um, first Mary Francis and then Sarah Cohen were just extraordinary, extraordinary people and so helpful and amazing. And then the two anonymous readers who gave me very detailed um, comments, that was just invaluable. So whoever you are out there, if you're listening to this, you, you know who you are because you spent a lot of time with my <laughs> bloated, unwieldy first version of this book. <laughs> and I, uh, I really appreciate all the work you did. Um, so, you know, th- for, to those of you who are listening to this, who are in the process of, you know, getting a book proposal together or are waiting on comments from your readers, you know, take it, take, take it seriously. Take the work that they do seriously. Editors are very careful about who they ask, you know, um, and those people are going to spend a lot of time doing really close reading and they're going to pick everything apart because that's their job. And, you know, don't take it personally, like realize that they're, Trying to, those people are trying to help you refine your ideas and, and take your great ideas and turn them into something that the maximum number of people can get something significant out of. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a big, it's a giant process, but ultimately it's, it's really rewarding. And, you know, if, if you can, if you approach it from an intellectually and emotionally honest place, then it's, you can't go wrong.
1: But you got it done. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you, you, yeah, you got to get it done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But thank you, Dr. League, for joining us uh, today on the New Books Network. Um, I always wrap up with this question, right? So what else are you working on these days?
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, so, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm working back to those two projects that I was contemplating 10 years ago when I was starting my PhD. Um, one about um, the instrumental bisonoric accordion music of northeast Brazil, particularly, um, in the state of Paraíba. I've spent a lot of time there investigating that accordion traditions, historical links to, um, music from Ireland and, um, the British Isles more broadly, as well as how it is, I suppose how it's a, it's a sonic marker of this particular northeastern Brazilian, um, racialized and politicized identity um, among uh, people who are of mixed Indigenous and um, and European uh, blood for the most most part. Uh, So I'm starting to work on that a little bit more. I'm also um, diving back into my project on Cretan um, improvisation in Cretan music and dance, and I'm starting two new projects. One of which is um, both are based here in the American South. One of which is about the role that, um, traditional Greek music and dance or the roles rather it's played in the transition to, and the, I suppose the consolidation and interrogation of, of ethnic whiteness among Greek immigrants to the South, um, which is a very unique, very particular situation. Um, and myself being a Greek American from the deep South, um, it's something that I've thought about a lot, especially in our current political climate. Um, right. Um, and then I'm also starting a project about um, instrumental surf music in the South, which is a very is a, which is a very very big thing. So, um, oh my God, that's what I I'm, can't that's, wait. That's, that's what it, <laughs> that's what I'm starting to work on. So let's see, what is it? It's uh, it's mid to late twenty twenty one. Hopefully, <laughs> these things will a couple of these things will come to fruition in one form or another before the next decade starts.
1: <laughs> I believe in you.
0: Yeah. you Thank you very it. much. And I'm also, <laughs> I'm also working on a lot of music stuff, including a lot of, um, you know, composing a lot of music that, that has to do with all these projects. So I'm trying to do more of that also um, in my work as a, as a musicologist. Really trying to find very creative, but more importantly, productive, rigorous ways of incorporating my artistic of, of merging my artistic and um, scholastic lives, I guess you could say academic lives.
1: Cool. Excellent. Well, I will definitely look forward to seeing what comes from all of those. Um, and uh, listeners, just as a quick recap, uh, you just heard an interview with Dr. Panayotis League, author of Echoes of the Great Catastrophe, resounding Anatolian greatness and diaspora published by the University of Michigan. Press in 2021. And this is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network.